right, so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to quiz you guys real quick. How many of you guys went home and read through the whole Sermon on the Mount this past week? Nice. You got a gold star by your name. I got a little list of everybody that's been coming. I'm going to put a little gold star next to it. Um, I'm going to encourage you guys to do it each week. So get ready for that at the end. But Matthew, he, he put this whole thing together, this, all these, these teachings of Jesus. This could have been a, a whole teaching that Jesus did all at once. Some people view that it might have been a, um, Matthew compiling together various teachings of Jesus. But um, we do know that these are teachings that he would give on the regular. This was part of his, his teaching ministry, as you'll see some of the, the same um, things being expressed in other forms or in different wording. But um, they'll repeat themselves throughout uh, Matthew and the other gospel uh, writers. And so um, a few things that I wanted to just kind of touch on um, before we read through this is that uh, we're going to be looking at the Beatitudes tonight. We're looking at Matthew chapter 5 verses 1 through 12. And um, we're going to begin this study through Jesus's teaching. I, I want us to remember that this section Matthew 5 through 7 shows in greater detail what the repentant lifestyle that characterizes the people of the kingdom, the disciples of Jesus, the followers of Jesus. And um, one commentator wrote that this great message tells us how we will live when Jesus is our Lord. I liked how simple that was. This, This whole... Sermon on the Mount is going to give us instruction, but also give us a picture of what the Christian looks like as they live for Jesus. Beatitudes, as we look at them, let's uh, turn in our Bibles if you're not already there, but we're going to uh, we're going to sit and or we'll read through them all uh, real quick here. It says in verse one, chapter five, when Jesus saw the crowds. He went up on the mountain, and after he sat down, his disciples came to him. He opened his mouth and began to teach them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the gentle, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who have been persecuted for the sake of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you and persecute you and falsely say all kinds of evil things, evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward in heaven is great, for in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. 
The Beatitudes are written in a Hebrew literary form. Did you notice the repetition? Blessed are the dot, 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 for they shall dot, dot, dot. And this was actually something, if you compile all the scriptures, and I have, we'll look at one example. If you want to turn um, to Psalm 1, verses 1 through 3, this is an example of the use of that formula. This was something that uh, every Jewish person hearing this style of delivery of Jesus' teaching would get. They would be very familiar with it. So Psalm 1, 1 through 3. Real easy to find. First one in the book. It says... It says, How blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked, nor stand in the path of sinners, nor sit in the seat of the scoffers. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and in his law he meditates day and night. He will be like a tree, firmly planted by streams of water, which yields its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither. And whatever he does, he prospers." Do you see, this one's a longer drawn out one, but how blessed is the man who, and then later in verse three, he will be like. There's a promise in in the man who abstains from uh, walking in the counsel of the wicked or standing in the path of the sinners or sitting in the seat of the scoffers. The blessing is um, fruitfulness and full vitality of life when uh, that man is... uh, avoiding being in the place of the sinners, the wicked, and the scornful, or the scoffers. There's a a promise there. But there's also some instruction involved as well. It's really contingent on not just avoiding walking in the path of sinners and, you know, standing in the path of the uh, sinners, sorry, and sitting in the seat of scoffers, but it's the opposite is delighting and meditating upon God's word day and night. So there's the, there's the, what they are doing instead of what they aren't doing that yields the fruitful life. And you could find other examples. There's uh, in Psalm 119, one and two, it says how blessed are those whose way is blameless, who walk in the law of the Lord. How blessed are those who observe his testimonies, who seek him with all their heart. And that's the beginning of, uh, of Psalm 119. And it goes on. You can see it. You could just look up the word blessed in your Bible app and, and find it. You, you, uh, 32.1, 41.1, 84.12. These are all Psalms. 112.1. You know, and then it goes on. You have it repeated in the Proverbs and in Isaiah as well. But the Beatitudes... When we look at this list, so to say, we want to ask the question, what, what are they? But starting with the question, what are they not? Well, it's not Jesus' lesson on how to be a good moral person. Some people look at the Sermon on the Mount as a way to, you know, if I can live by these rules, I'll, I'll be a good person. I'll be morally acceptable to God. And then it's not... 
Jesus is teaching on how to save oneself either. It's not a, you have to do these things to be accepted by Jesus. You got to remember the order in which um, this has been displayed to us is that Jesus had already called his disciples and they began to follow him and they're they're standing there listening to him teach them now. So this is this is something that Jesus is teaching his disciples of how uh, to live as his disciples. This is something um, he's giving them a picture of what it's like to be his disciples, what their attitudes or characteristics are to be. They are the attitudes or characteristics of the repentant disciple of Jesus and the promises as well of the kingdom for the disciple. But on closer look, you'll realize how countercultural this list is to our own culture and how it was countercultural to Jesus's day. And they go up against worldly wisdom. So it says in verse one that when Jesus saw the crowd, he went up on the hill and after he sat down, his disciples came to him. And I wanted to define a disciple, what, it, what the discipleship is. It was a, um, actually a, a definition that I heard unrelated to um, my studying for tonight. But I thought, wow, this is really helpful. And I wanted to, I wanted to share that with you guys. All right. So discipleship is a process in learn or, or such that I might, my notes got all mixed up right here. I'm sorry. It, discipleship is a process such that his way of life becomes my way of life. T- speaking of Jesus, this is by a teacher, um, a, a theologian or scholar named um, Gary Brashears, but his discipleship is a process in such that Jesus's way of life becomes my way of life. His values of doing life become my values for doing life. And I learn wisdom on how to get life done. Make sense? So it's a process. It's not just something immediately where we, we automatically have all of these characteristics. It's something that the Lord is teaching us these things through our day-to-day life. And as we follow him, it's a process that, that I'm learning that, to, um, that such that his way of life becomes my way of life. And his values of doing th- life become my values for doing life. And it's in this that I learned wisdom on how to get that life done, that life that he's given me, that life he's calling, called me to in service of him. And so it says that his disciples came to him. They're going to Jesus. They're following him. And he opened his mouth and began to teach them. And this is where they learned from him. Now, the list of characteristics, I wanted to read them one after another before we go bullet point by bullet point here, uh, looking at each one. But we want to get an idea, a full spec, like a 10,000 foot look. We want to see 
what all of these characteristics are stacked up next to each other. Because it could be easy to come in and just um, cherry pick, pick each one of these, and it, it's helpful to do so and to meditate upon each one of them. But Jesus is giving us the overall holistic person in this uh, teaching here. It, and he lists the characteristic as a poor in spirit. They mourn. They're gentle, humble, or meek. All the same words. Hungry and thirsting for righteousness. They're merciful, pure in heart, peacemakers, and persecuted. Those are all parts of being a disciple and follower of Jesus under his leadership, under his authority. But the first one he starts off with is, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. I want to point out here that when you look at verse 3 and verse 10, there's a repetition of that term, the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And then if you look at verse 10, it says, Blessed are those who have been persecuted for the sake of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. When um, in Hebrew literature and writing, they would often bracket one concept at the beginning and end of a full statement. And so what we want to understand here is that everything that is being said in between those two brackets is part of the whole. That's why I said it's a, it's a holistic thing. It has to do with the kingdom of heaven. It's a literary design to focus us on those things in between uh, those two statements. But everything that is being spoken of here is in that concept of the kingdom of heaven and under the leadership of Jesus. But the first word we need to understand, though, is blessed. What does blessed mean? You know, oftentimes... Uh, we will use the word blessed to describe favorable circumstances, right? Like, ah, oh, I'm, you know, how's your day going? I'm blessed. You know, nothing bad's happening to me. I got a great lunch waiting for me, you know, here. Or, you know, I'm about to go home and relax and my favorite team's playing or, you know, I'm going on vacation this, you know, later today. I'm blessed, you know, favorable conditions. But what's that mean when, your day is going horrible, you know, and you got a flat tire before you even got out of the, you know, even out of the driveway to go to work. And then you get home and one of the kids are sick and, you know, and you got to do all this laundry that's piled up. Are you less blessed during that time? Not in our understanding of the word blessed, right? Well, blessed here in the Bible is a state of satisfaction based on promises held to be true and transcendent that transcend present circumstances and has present and future implications. What do I mean by that? When we say blessed as a Christian, we're satisfied that there's nothing else that we need apart from Jesus and everything that he has promised us to satisfy us. It's not about, or our, our, our blessedness isn't about our circumstances around us. And as you look at this list, 
you know, poor in spirit, those mourning, those that are gentle or, or humble or meek, you know, that's not usually a characteristic that gets a lot of attention in, the, in our common world. You know, how many, you know, people aren't out there making peace all the time. They're actually stirring up trouble most of the time. But this is something that the, that the disciple, the follower of Jesus has. It's a satisfaction. And it's not based on any circumstance, but will impact my day-to-day. It, it, because I am blessed, it doesn't matter what's happening around me. The definition, yeah. It says, uh, the state of satisfaction based on promises held to be true that transcend present circumstances and has present and future implications. And I kind of, that's my little definition. I pulled together a few things. I, I looked at a lot of the, those blessed verses and um, just kind of got an overview of what that word blessed or how it was being used. Uh, and then um, also looking at how the the um, how how it's been used in the newer testament as well in the new testament, but even are taking consideration that you know when you look at the beatitudes, look at verse three. It says, "Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is." What's the word? is it's a present tense word right look at verse two or verse four sorry blessed are those who mourn for they shall be comforted so we have a present reality and we also have a future promise so that's where i got that present and future implications it impacts our lives now but it also means there's like a rich fulfillment to all of these promises when we're united with Christ when we're in his when his kingdom is fully set up so a blessed person is someone who because of a heart for God is promised and enjoys God's favor regardless of that person's status or countercultural condition and that was by another scholar there but I want us to look about what the Bible says about who is blessed and who is not. And we can find those words right here before us, that Jesus is the one who says who is blessed and who is not. Look at his words. Blessed are the poor. This is Jesus actually speaking with authority as if, you know, in the same way they would hear the, the prophets speaking uh, by God's authority and, and, and even... Uh, the Old Testament authors, Moses and them that are speaking on behalf of God. But we have Jesus. They would have to say the Lord says, or they would, you know, be coining a psalm like David would. It would still have his, his words to it. But Jesus is the one that's actually determining who is blessed and who's not. Jesus calls those that are his disciples who have heeded his calls, call, he calls them blessed. But the first one that he he blesses in this order. Uh, and there are so many ways you can look at this. And it kind of made me a little bit dizzy reading all the different, st- different ways to approach this. 
But the way that I'm going to go through it is, is to just look at what, what, how these words have been used, but who Jesus is talking to as well. He's talking to his disciples. They've left all to follow him, becoming poor. They have no security, no possessions, no property, no earthly society to claim their allegiance. They have no one but Jesus. Now, I might have said this last week, but you think about Peter and Andrew, you think about James and John when they left the fishing boats to go follow Jesus. There would have been uh, implications in doing that. They would have faced some social scrutiny for ditching their father with the family business. There was a cost to their following Jesus. But they had exchanged everything for him in exchange, and in exchange, theirs was the kingdom of heaven. And for us in our culture, there's not, there's sometimes, there is, depending on what what is going on or what uh, situation we're coming from, but there's not as great of a cost sometimes as there is for others in different cultures. You think about somebody that is coming to follow Jesus from Islam and they live in an Islamic country, there is going to be heavy persecution, heavy um, stance against them converting to Christianity or following Jesus. They're, they're gonna, there's a price to pay. That, that social support, the community, they, they might lose work, financial means. And that can happen here too. I don't want to think that it couldn't or hasn't. But there is an exchanging, a, a death that occurs in our life as we come at, to Jesus and poor in spirit. Now, when that word poor means literally poor, like, uh, you know, lacking needs. But Matthew, he records Jesus tacking on in spirit. And so we get a fuller picture that, that even the disciples coming to Jesus, they had no spiritual power. They had no experience or knowledge to rest in or rely upon spiritually. They were coming to Jesus to follow him. They needed everything they, they could from him to be able to do, to live, to even keep going uh, on as his disciples. And so, you know, there was this idea that poverty and piety were often associated together in, in Judaism, in early Judaism. The term poor could encompass either physical property, poverty, sorry, or the faithful dependence on God that it often produced. When you, when you have need, it does that kind of a work. You're, you're forced to pray a little bit more. You know, you're, when you have an a exploding bank account, you know, it, it, all those little issues like the flat tire or something like that, they might encroach on your time and become a frustration, but you're not like worried like, how oh, am I going to get this fixed? You know, Lord, where will this money come from? You see what I just, you know, you're going straight to the Lord in prayer for these things. And so sometimes it, poverty would uh, um, cater to a more of a dependence upon God when, 
uh, you think about the rich young ruler who was, Jesus said, you know, hey, if you want to follow me, sell all you have and give it to the poor. And, and the guy was like, oh, I got way too much stuff to get rid of. Like, this stuff matters to me. But that's kind of the description that is going on here. But look what he's, Jesus says is the promise. Theirs is the kingdom of heaven. You think about the poor who have no ownership of anything, but Jesus says, yours is the kingdom. That is your realm. That's where you will be uh, from paupers to princes. And then he goes on and he says, blessed are those who mourn for they shall be comforted. Mourning here is, is, can be seen for the world. We look at Psalm 119, 136. uh, The psalmist is writing, my eyes shed streams of water because they do not keep your law. And there's a brokenness over the, the situation in the world, a brokenness when we see uh, so-called Christians leaving the faith or we see um, just the, the horrible tragedies of these school shootings or other violent acts. Things, I mean... What's been going on for over a year now? We got Ukraine and Russia and all that stuff going on. A heart mourns, it breaks for that stuff because people are just so full of themselves and going after these things and it causes destruction. But it's also a characteristic of a disciple over his or her sin as well. In 2 Corinthians 7, 10, as I go through these, I'm going to fire off a bunch of scriptures. You just write them down you can... Check them out later, but it says, For the sorrow that is according to the will of God produces a repentance without regret, leading to salvation, but the sorrow of the world produces death. You see, a Christian who is broken over their sin, it it brings them to Jesus, it brings them to uh, salvation. And Mourning was usually associated with either repentance or bereavement. It was one of the two things. But Jesus um, brings it into view with a promise, for they shall be comforted. So comfort is the second aspect here that's in view. It can mean grief over Israel's sins, but in this context, it probably refers to the pain of the oppressed, the poor of the day, who were the ones that were open to Jesus. Think about all those that he had healed prior, all those suffering with the infirmities and all those things going on. Those were the ones that were coming to Jesus and willing to listen to what he had to say. But on the perimeter, maybe in the crowd, remember last week we talked about, are we the disciples going to learn from Jesus or are we just kind of scoping it out as a crowd that was on looking and and listening? His words were available to all people, but one was with the intent of following and others were the intent of figuring this guy out. But in that crowd would have been religious rulers. There would have been people that had status that, that... Things were pretty comfortable for them. But Jesus is, um, we see this character, Simeon, in Luke chapter 2, verses 25 through 26. And you guys remember Simeon? He was a righteous and devout man looking for the consolation or that comfort of Israel. 
he was the one that was serving in the temple when um, when Jesus, uh, when Mary had become pregnant with Jesus. And when they had come to dedicate Jesus, uh, it describes this scene where Simeon was uh, looking for the consolation of Israel and the Holy Spirit was upon him. And it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death till he has seen the Lord's Christ. And so there's the connection in that in that ver in that set of verses that the consolation is the Messiah coming. Jesus is that consolation. He is the comfort for which those who are mourning over their sin, mourning over the state of the world, Jesus is their comfort. And it was brought about through his, his cross. In Isaiah 61, 1 through 2, this, uh, this is actually a, a scripture that Jesus quoted himself. It says, the spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me. The, that's the term Messiah. Uh, anointed me to bring good news to the afflicted. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted. Those are mourning. To proclaim liberty to the captives, freedom to prisoners, to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord and the day of vengeance of our God. Listen, to comfort all who mourn. They're broken over the state of the world, state of their country, state of their people. And Jesus is their comfort. So they, those who are mourning, they have found, they're blessed because they have found Jesus and they will be comforted. And then he goes on to the meek. See how this progression is, uh, is going through. You have the poor in spirit, those who are broken over sin and their sin and the sin around them. And then we come to the gentle. Blessed are the gentle or meek in some translations or humble, for they shall inherit the earth. The gentle are blessed, happy, satisfied because they will inherit the earth. What does this gentleness have to do with an inheritance of the earth? It's interesting, right? Well, if you think about the word gentle, it, it, it describes somebody uh, who really is not chasing after their own rights. It's somebody that's uh, renouncing every right or uh, everything, um, every right of their own and living for Jesus. Everything they do shows that they don't belong to this world. And you see that this earth is not the, the cons their concern so much in, in trying to uh, do everything within their power or their pride to, to get as much of it as they can. But it's more that they've settled themselves in Jesus. And it's because of that settling that they will inherit the earth. They don't have to. Um, well, I'll just let this this definition here go gentle and especially unresisting under wrong and oppression and so more than poor in spirit or unambitious of worldly things. Uh, so it, it describes an unambition. That's not the right word, but unambitious of going after worldly things. But in letting those things go, they will inherit them all. Here, Jesus uh, cites scripture, uh, Psalms 37, 9 through 11, that not those who try to bring in the kingdom politically or militarily, but those who humbly wait on God will inherit the earth. This is where we get a fuller idea of that 
though term gentle or meek. It says in Psalm 37, 9 through 11, For evildoers will be cut off, but those who wait for the Lord, they will inherit the land. Yet a little while, and the wicked man will be no more. And you who look carefully for his place, and he will not be there. But the humble will inherit the land and will delight themselves in abundant prosperity. You see, these, the gentle person is not about trying to conquer the land, not trying to take over the government for their own purposes, but they trust in Jesus. They trust in the Lord and him to settle all of these things right. It's, it's really a, a picture of strength under control. It's a gentleness of strength. And that source of strength is in the one who has given the promise in knowing Jesus to fulfill his word. Now, inheriting the earth comes with more of a Jewish concept and an idea. Uh, the earth is translated in our English, but it's really the word that stands for land. And it's more like the land. The land was always a big deal to Israel, right? There, it was promised to them, the promised land. And so for them at this time, they were in Israel, but they were under Roman occupation. They had no real rights to the land and to be able to serve or to do all of their things without any restriction. And it was just a, an oppressive time for them. But they, so some would say that this means that they would get the land that was promised to them. Some people believe or see that uh, the Jewish people expected God's people to reign over all the earth. And you can find some passages that may suggest that. But that's kind of the mindset that was behind it. Uh, we Like this one here, Psalm 25, 12 through 13. Who is the man who fears the Lord? He will instruct him in the way he should choose. His soul will abide in prosperity, and his descendants will inherit the land. So if they follow the Lord, they would experience that richness of, getting, um, of inheriting the land that was promised to them. But then we come to verse 6. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. We see that those that hunger and thirst for righteousness are blessed satisfied in him and they will be further satisfied by what Jesus does. They know with the Messiah that the righteous, that righteousness will be done and will be the rule of his reign. They long for that day and will receive it. And in the meantime, they practice it themselves. All wrongs will be made right and all wrongdoers will be judged. That's the confidence we have in our Lord. You see, Jesus turns one of the elemental human instincts to spiritual use, that hunger and thirst. He turns that natural desire for, to be satisfied physically, and he turns it into a spiritual one for righteousness, a, a thirst for goodness, for holiness. And there was just this understanding that, Jesus, that God would, would satisfy his people. That was the understanding of the Jew. They would rely back on, on Moses in the Exodus and how the Lord provided the food for them. And, 
and he gave them instruction. He provided uh, guidance for them. He set up the pillar of cloud by day and the fire by night. He provided for them as they followed him. And then we have, we move on from those that are hungering for righteousness. It says that they shall be satisfied. Oh, something that was funny about that word satisfied. It, it actually meant like complete satisfaction. Like, like you would stuff uh, an animal for the slaughter, basically. Like you're, you're feeding them so much that they're just getting bigger and bigger. It was kind of funny imagery. I was like looking into those things, but completely satisfied. Then we have mercy. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. The merciful are blessed because they shall receive mercy. That's they they're able to give mercy because they know they will receive mercy or have already received mercy. It's the person whose sins have been forgiven and have begun to know of the great mercy or loving kindness shown them by God that they themselves are merciful towards others looking for ways to show mercy to those in need. Now, there were wonderful verses on this. You have Psalm 41, 1 through 4. It says, How blessed is he who considers the helpless, The Lord will deliver him in the day of trouble. The Lord will protect him and keep him alive. And he shall be called blessed upon the earth. And do not give him over to the desire of his enemies. The Lord will sustain him upon his sickbed and in his illness. And you restore him to health. As for me, I said, O Lord, be gracious to me and heal my soul. For I have sinned against you. You see that the receiving of mercy and the extending of it out considering the helpless and delivering. Um, Isaiah writes to the Jews at his time. And he says in chapter 58, verses 6 through 12, it says, Is this not the fast that I chose to loosen the bonds of wickedness, to undo, uh, undo the bands of the yoke, and to let the oppressed go free and break every yoke? Is it not to divide your bread with the hungry, to bring the homeless Pour into the house when you see the naked to cover him and not to hide yourself from your own flesh. Then your light will break out like the dawn and your recovery will speedily spring forth and your righteousness will go before you. The glory of the Lord will be your rear guard. Then you will call and the Lord will answer. You will cry and he will say, here I am. And He's rebuking them for allowing all of these things to happen and to neglecting, showing mercy. That was Isaiah 58, verses 6 through 12. I didn't read all 12 because we need to keep moving. But we see in looking at these verses that showing mercy is expressed by helping the helpless, the oppressed, feeding the hungry, housing the homeless, clothing the naked, not hiding from the brokenness of your fellow man. And Jesus uses a term here, the merciful man, which is uh, derived from a word that means to be in pain as a woman in travail. And 
or from uh, another part of the word to cry or to lament grievously. Because what is happening is when a, mercy, when a person has mercy because they've received mercy, they actually enter into the miseries of their neighbor and feels for and mourns with him. Do you see how these are kind of building upon each other? You're mourning over the brokenness of your own sin, and then you're mourning over the brokenness of the world. But when you mourn over the brokenness of the world, it's, it's causing a stirring up with you as a disciple of Jesus to do something about it, to actually step out and to help, to not let that go on. And then we have the verse 8, Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. The pure in heart were those uh, in Israel whose hearts were clean or undefiled. That's how Psalm 73.1 puts it. Those who recognized that God alone was their help and their reward uh, further on in 73. And the righteous would see God on the day of judgment as in the first exodus. So we see that when they knew that only somebody who was pure of heart could see the Lord. But when Jesus is saying it, it's those that are seeking after the, their, to, to be holy, to, to want to live in a pure way before him and for the Lord. And it's those that will ultimately see the Lord. There can't be any divided heart. There can't be any kind of, um, you know, a division that from the discipleship to the Jesus. It's those that are, are pure in who he has cleansed that can see God. We have verse 9, Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. And we see how uh, over and over in Scripture, we have Psalm 133.1, Behold how good and how pleasant it is for brethren to dwell in unity. Peace among family and community. It's a beautiful thing to the Lord. When he sees us loving one another and working together for his glory, it's a beautiful thing. But peace is also to be made with all men, even our enemy. True peacemaking involves action. We look at Romans 12, 18 through 20. If, if possible, so far as it depends on you, be at peace with all men. Never take your own revenge, beloved, but leave room for the wrath of God, for it is written, Vengeance is mine, and I will repay, says the Lord. But if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him a drink. For in doing so, you will heap burning coals on his head. It involves action, the process of peacemaking. It's not abstaining from the situation, but seeing how we can work out peace. It involves forgiveness as well. Extending forgiveness to the degree that God has forgiven us in Jesus. In Ephesians 4, verse 32, it says, Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ has forgiven you. But peace is something that needs to be pursued and it cannot exist without consecration or sanctification to God. Because that's what it says, Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. This is something that is set up. You're setting yourself apart for the Lord as son of God. It says, 
Pursue peace with all men and the sanctification without which no one will see the Lord. It has to be set apart. It has to be consecrated. And it's something that needs to be pursued our lives. Jesus calls us to be peacemakers and to create peace where there was not. This is a costly thing to do, and it involves dying to ourselves. This is what Jesus did, isn't it? If we look at Ephesians chapter 2, verses 11, starting in verse 11, Paul is writing to the Ephesians, and he's talking about how God, through Jesus Christ, has broken down the wall of separation that was between the Jew and the Gentile. These two different worlds, these two different cultures that, that were, you know, the Gen- Jews were told to stay away from the, the things of the Gentiles, but they were to be welcoming of Gentiles if they were to convert into Judaism. But under Jesus, there, was no sep- there, there is no separation anymore because all are saved through him. And Paul writes in verse 11 of chapter 2, Therefore remember that formerly you, the Gentiles in the flesh, who were called uncircumcision by the so-called circumcision, the Jews, which is performed in the flesh by human hands, remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, excluded from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope without God in the world. That was their state. There was no way that they, they didn't have... God's law given to them on how they can have a relationship with God. They didn't have, they weren't born into this whole heritage of of God's chosen people. But he says, but now in Christ Jesus, you who formerly were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. It's Jesus's blood that unites. It took Jesus's death on the cross to break down that disunity. For he himself is our peace, who made both groups into one and broke down the barrier of the dividing wall by abolishing in his flesh the enmity, which is the law of the commandments contained in ordinances, so that in himself he might make the two into one new man, thus establishing peace and might reconcile them both in one body to God through the cross, having put to death the enmity. It was through Jesus' death that he is able to unite the world in himself. And it took him everything, right? It took his life. It's costly to pursue peace. Sometimes it will require us dying to ourselves, if not all the time, really. And you see how things kind of have ramped up because now we go into the blessed are those who have been persecuted for the sake of righteousness. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And blessed are you when people insult you and persecute you and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad for your reward in heaven is great. For in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. You see, many of the Old Testament prophets suffered in bringing God's word to Israel. You can read the list in Hebrews of of some of the prophets' names, and you you can hear about some of the horrible things that happened to them. You you hear about even Daniel being thrown into the lion's den, and and there's uh, a tradition says that, I think it was Isaiah, is sawn in half or sawn in two. They went through 
crazy, crazy things for the sake of standing and bringing God's word to the people. But um, Jesus, he takes and compares his followers to the prophets. They persecuted the prophets before you. This is nothing new. People who don't want to hear what God's word says, as Jesus would be sending out these same disciples, listening to his teaching into the world to tell others, he's comparing his followers to them, to the prophets, that indicating that they would have an extraordinary mission. This was going to be something of, of great scope and really intense intensity. But Jesus has a promise for them, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Those who are being persecuted for the sake of right living, that righteousness. Those who are persecuted and having false things, evil things that were false said about them or against them because they follow Jesus. Not because they're acting weird. Not because they're acting crazy. But for the name of Jesus and for following him. I can't keep going. Like it's, it's, you know, you're in a situation with something at work. And somebody wants to be dishonest. And you're like, I can't do that. Why? You're too good? You know? No, it's because I believe I'm a follower of Jesus. And I can't go on doing, I can't go that route with you. And then things turn. There's something spiritual that happens. And it's an attack at that point. It's, it's not abusing your time. And you're supposed to be working. And you're out there trying to evangelize to somebody. That's not... That's not right. You, you have agreed to abide by, you know, your, the standards of your work. But if you say that you can't go down a route because it's wrong or it's, it's you know, it's evil, I can't do that. And then you suffer persecution. That's for righteousness sake, for, for following Jesus in that path. Um, Kyler and I will... Um, We'll work out together, and then there's a cool-down period afterwards, and we've, I've been trying to memorize Scripture with him. And so we've been doing um, Psalm 23, and then we've got the Lord's Prayer, and then we're going to try and do um, Psalm 1, because I love that psalm, uh, as the next one. But uh, Psalm 23, he, he leads me in paths of righteousness for his namesake. We know that Jesus as our shepherd will lead us in the way we should go. We'll know. And that will come with opposition, spiritual opposition. Let's wrap up real quick because I'm out of time. What does all this mean for us? We had to go through it fairly quickly. and um, But what's, what's the larger picture? Remember I said that at the beginning. We want to look at these as a whole. And I tried to summarize it, and this might not be the perfect thing. I might have to adjust it. But all of these beatitudes together describe a person broken, broken by the world, broken in repentance, desiring more than what this world has to offer. 
but they find satisfaction and wholeness in the words of Jesus, his blessing and his promise, that it alters their life completely. They look to live as he does and to listen to his teachings and are blessed in suffering for doing so. That's kind of my summarization of, of the Beatitudes. God's kingdom functions counterculturally to the world. And we didn't explore that whole concept, but you can, I'm encouraging you guys to continue to meditate on it. But it, it functions counterculturally to the world. To which are we lining up with, though? That's the question to ask. As a disciple, these characteristics or attitudes should be our desire and way of life. We have eternal blessings, promises that cannot compare to the temporary happiness of operating according to self-interest. Are your attitudes a carbon copy of the world's selfishness, pride, lust for power, or do they reflect the humility and self-sacrifice of Jesus, your King? That's the question to ask. And sometimes we know where we're at because the Lord allowed us to go through something and you go, oh, I need more of you, Jesus. I tried to operate in my own ways and I need more of you. Forgive me. I encourage you to pray through these this week. Ask the Lord for help in the areas you feel weak in. Ask him to teach you how to be those things within the particular situation you're thinking of. Ask in order that you will listen and do. And so that's my encouragement tonight. Um, as we continue on through this, we'll pray. And I will encourage you again to attempt, sit down, read through the three chapters. Grab a cup of coffee. It's my favorite thing to do. Grab a cup of coffee. Sit down and just read through it. Lock yourself in the bathroom if you have to. <laughs> go walk around it pace around about outside where everyone doesn't know where you're at you know whatever it takes so let's pray lord i thank you for your word tonight lord and i thank you for just the promises or the blessings the, the promise of blessing lord for all these things or how inadequate we can feel looking at these things and and even still trying to make the connections with what does all this mean for my life and, and today. Um, Lord, I just pray that you, your spirit would just uh, continue to work all of these things out within us and in our hearts. Lord, and that we would uh, just continue to, to look more like you and to bring you glory through, Lord, our actions. Lord. Uh, show us where we need to show more mercy, Lord. Uh, show us the great mercy that we've already experienced, Lord, that, that you've, you've poured out on us, that we might be merciful in return, Lord, and to just, just live out all of these things. Jesus, we thank you for your life that has been laid down for us. Lord, drawing us into this, this life, Lord, of discipleship with you. Lord, we pray uh, for each one of these that are here tonight, Lord, just that you would continue to direct our steps, Lord. Lead us in paths of righteousness for your namesake this week, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.